I shall never forget the time when Mary Lewis and I were touring in the US. We were flying to Oklahoma for a gathering of roots and shoots, and we had to change planes. And it was one of those places where there are many gates leading out of one central waiting room, and people are sitting around waiting for their particular flight to be called. And there was a group of students also waiting. And so we went over and started talking to them. We were all sitting on the floor. And of course, we told them about Roots and Shoots. And they were absolutely fascinated, wanting to know all about it and wanting to know about Gombe and the chimps. Suddenly I said to Mary, goodness, what's the time? We had absolutely failed to hear the announcement of our flight. So engrossed were we in talking to students. It was late evening and we had to stay in an airport hotel and catch an early morning flight. Our hosts were not very happy with us, but it all worked out okay in the end. We are all connected. All our voices matter. And it will take all of our bold talents and strengths to create a healthier planet. Our mother, our one and only. I aspire to change the world too, because of the hope she gave me. The earth is beautiful. She devoted her life together. Together we can save the world. Together we can, together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today, I'm joined by an American politician, attorney, and author whose dedication to environmental justice inspires me, Senator Cory Booker. Senator Booker lives a plant-based life, practices what he calls radical love, and fights every day for the health, access, and rights of underserved communities. He's also an ardent climate activist. Corey and I may have different approaches, but our shared belief in the power of hope and empowering individuals to take action brings us very much together. I'm looking forward to our discussion about creating positive change on a local, national and global scale and what it means to be a public servant. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Corey Booker. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Senator Cory Booker. I'm really excited to get to know you a little bit. You've done such amazing things in your life, and I truly look forward to chatting with you. I cannot tell you, uh, this is a, one of my great uh, privileges to be digitally, at least in your presence. I have so admired you, and you've inspired me in so much of my work professionally. And in a spiritual way, you've been a light worker in my life and a guide in many ways to living a good life. And I'm just so grateful for you. And thank you for inviting me into this conversation. So, Corey, what fascinates me always when I meet people for the first time, what was it in your childhood that pushed you in the direction you've gone? And when did you know you wanted to go into politics? Wow. Well, my mom has this saying, behind every successful child is an astonished parent. and <laughs> I love it. And, and my mom loves being astonished at how her child turned out. Um, my parents got a, the Fair Housing Council and a white couple to help them integrate a town. They, they literally had somebody pose as them to buy the house. I grew up in, in a privileged area of New Jersey. 
and grew up with these civil rights activist parents who really modeled for me this activism. I think James Baldwin said it best that children are never good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. And I really believe I am who I am because I had parents who were activists. And then by the time I got through school and was coming out of law school, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a part of a community um, that was fighting to manifest the best ideals of our country. And I moved into a what was then perceived as a very, very tough neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey, where I still live today. But the median income was below the poverty line, and it was known for violence. But often those are the things people say about a community. When I moved in there through the eyes of some incredible leaders who adopted me, I saw the beauty and the specialness and the value uh, of the folks. It may not have had that much wealth, but the treasure I found there changed my life. And I am who I am because that community really adopted me. And eventually they told me to stop my lawyering and, and to run for city council against the city's big, very powerful machine at that point. What time in your life was it when you, if I got it right, you lived in a tent and you went on a hunger strike? So I was transformed when the tenant leaders in this community really pulled me in. And eventually I moved into this housing uh, complex. It's these two big brick buildings, these projects called Brick Towers. And I was encouraged to run for city council and then at the time became the youngest city council person in Newark's history, beating a person uh, 40 years my senior and who had been in office a very long time. But my initial foray into politics was awful. My first year was bad. I wasn't getting anything done. I was being outvoted all the time on city council. All my reform ideas seemed to be hitting against implacable walls of resistance. On my lowest day, a year into office, the tenant president of my buildings and I had a bit of a clash because there had been a violent incident at another set of projects where I represented, and I didn't know what to do about it. And I told her that angrily. This whole year has been a waste. Why did I go into politics? This is such a mistake. I should have stayed as an activist lawyer. And she looked at me and she goes, well, I know what you should do right now about the problem. And I looked at this elder in our community who was very wise, and I thought, well, maybe God had given her some wisdom. And I said, well, what should I do? And she repeated herself, I know exactly what you should do. And I wasn't, I had no patience. I said, tell me what I should do. Stop playing with me. Tell me what I should do about the violence at the other housing project. And she looks at me, she goes, you should do. And I leaned in as if she had some great wisdom. She goes, you should do something. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, do something. And I was so angry. I disrespected her. I wheeled around, stormed into the projects. And I always say God has dominion over the world. But one place that I think sometimes he doesn't look at is housing projects, elevators. The elevator was not working. And I stormed up 16 flights of stairs, plopped myself in the couch, feeling sorry for myself and angry at the world. Then the wisdom of her words that I was giving up before I tried. And I decided to get a tent and bring it out to this area where the violent incident had just happened, set up the tent, held a press conference, which us politicians know how to do. And I announced that this is abhorrent to the very ideas of our country. How could people ignore this? It was literally right under an underpass that cut through uh, the, the Newark and went into some of the wealthiest suburbs in America. And I said, how can people ignore the, the struggles? And me and five or six other people slept under that tent the first night. The drug dealers who had 
when working their operations that we disrupted through things on top of the tent that were really nasty. But the next morning I woke up and these 12 guys came, big guys said, are you Corey Booker? And, and they said they had seen what happened on the press conference. And they said, we're not letting you stay out here alone. And they stayed with me. And next thing you know, dozens came out, hundreds came out. And before you know it, that community that had been struggling so much had, you know, hospitals coming to do health screenings, people donating computers, people coming in to do job fairs. And it was this 10 days of a hunger strike that let me just witness the goodness of, of people trying to come together and think more determinably how, how to solve this problem. And the end of this story is really one of the most special parts of the experience for me because my great adversary, the mayor of the city, who I would go on and have big clashes with, but who came out because he had been pressured by the press about as I was going day on day on this hunger strike. And I'll never forget when I saw him after 10 days of fasting and praying with people of all different faiths, he came out and I didn't see an enemy. And I'll never forget we hugged each other. And when I hugged him, I had that strange experience where I, 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 I smelt him and he smelled like he was my father's age. He smelled like older men in my family. And we both sort of announced that this would end. And then we did a final prayer and hundreds of people holding hands, black, white, Asian, you know, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, there were rabbis, there were imams. And it was the strongest I had ever felt in my life, 10 days without eating in that circle of strength. And as people pray, prayed in Spanish and English and Hebrew and Arabic, I heard the words of our ancestors, especially that old African saying that spider webs united could tie up a lion. And it really shaped me. That was one of my earliest experiences in, in politics and probably uh, changed my approach uh, in many ways. I'm sure it did. So rather than have a baptism by fire, you had a baptism by love. I have tried my best and been very imperfect, but to dedicate to my life to that as the highest principle of humanity and to try to live as radical in my love as possible. That's a wonderful story. Thanks a lot for sharing that. And so from that point on, what happened next after that 10 days? I decided to change my tactic. This idea that we are our job title is wrong. Uh, we are bigger than our job titles. Life is about purpose, not position. And I told my team then that we were going to rewrite the script on what it meant to be a city council person. And eventually I would say the same thing as a mayor and just try to bring the best of our activism and our imagination to the work we did. And we did different things. I lived in a mobile home for a while, parked it on tough corners in, in my district and just showed up and was present for people. And it's amazing how when you're in a community, your empathy deepens by being there for people. It kept continuing until as a very young man, I ran for mayor and, and lost. And there's no such thing as a failure if you don't give up. And I would eventually become mayor of New Jersey's largest city. And we had a great run, two terms of helping to transform the city and, and get a city that had long been looked down upon to become a model of resurgence and, and promise. And as you say, a model of hope. It sounds as though you're like me. With those, you know, those dolls that children play with, they're weighted at the bottom and you push it over and it bounces back up. Yes. I think that sounds like you and it's certainly like me. <laughs> you must have what I call a very durable hope. 
I don't think hope is real if it's shiny and unvarnished and un- unscarred. I think real hope is scarred deeply. I always say, well, hope is tied to action. And I think of it as we're at the beginning in a dark tunnel. And this tunnel is strewn with many obstacles. And right at the end of the tunnel is a bright, shining star. That's hope. But we don't stop and just give up and say, well, I hope that that star will come. Mm -mm. I love that expression in the Bible, girding your loins. You gird your loins and you've got to crawl under, climb over, work your way around all these obstacles. And as you go, you've got to take others with you until you've got a whole great vast horde of humanity all fighting to get to that kind of world we want, where we've finished with racial discrimination and gender inequality, where we show respect to the natural world, respect to animals, and above all, respect to each other. And, you know, I was very moved when you talked about the different kinds of people who came out with you and everybody praying together, because that's what it's all about. I can't tell you how much I agree with that. I think a lot of us surrender to cynicism at times about the world, or we look at the world and just condemn it, and we don't understand it's not about blame. It's about what responsibility am I willing to take? And it's about understanding that your very surrender to inaction or cynicism contributes to more cynicism and more inaction. You know, back to the the woman I told you that was such a powerful figure in my life, that tenant president who told me to do something. Her name is Virginia Jones. I would later find out, I didn't know this. I moved into those buildings. I would later find out that her son was murdered in the lobby of those buildings. I can't even imagine what that pain and and hurt feels like. And I went to her, and this was years into our friendship. And I told her I didn't know that in the 1980s, her son was murdered in the lobby of the building I lived in. And I was like, why did you stay in these buildings? And she looked at me in an almost annoyed, amused way. And she said, why am I still in these buildings? I go, yes, Ms. Jones. Why am I still living in apartment 5A? And I said, yes, Ms. Jones. She goes, why am I still the tenant president of these buildings since the day they were built in 1969? I'm like, yes, Ms. Jones, why? And she folds her arms and looks at me proudly. And she says, because I'm in charge of Homeland Security. Now, this is a woman without a title, without a presidential appointment, and but she took responsibility. And in that moment, she taught me a spiritual lesson about hope, that hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. And it's that word active that she was not going to give in to despair. But every day you have the ability through your kindness, through your active goodness, decency in this world through your individual actions to plant seeds of possibility that will bear a harvest for the world. The challenge I I face and the frustration I often face is we are separated from each other like we've never been before. The delusion of separateness. Just five miles down the road, people could be experiencing struggles that you know nothing of because we have this poverty of empathy that is so real. And we have a lack of understanding of the crisis we're in that is a World War II-like crisis when it comes to the environment. 
And so I tell you, I've come to these awakenings in my peer, in my life. One is I just used to take for granted the food on my plate and never think about where it comes from. And now that I've studied our food systems and see how much powerful injustice lies within these broken systems that have divorced people from the land, killed our land with millions and billions of pounds of chemicals poured into the earth that's killing our wildlife, that's poisoning our rivers, that's poisoning the farm workers, these big multinational corporations that are driving independent farmers in my country out of work, that are, that are producing foods that our government tells us not to eat, but yet most of our subsidies, only 2% of the subsidies go to the food they want us to eat. And then you have my children in communities like mine who walk into a corner grocery store and they find a Twinkie product cheaper than an apple because of all of our subsidies. And the childhood diabetes rates, the type 2 diabetes rates amongst children have been exploding amongst black children in America. It's doubled in the last 10 years. And so now we're getting sicker people, more obesity because of this toxic food, ultra-processed, empty nutrition that's so cheap and available because of our subsidies and our broken food system. And then we pay the healthcare costs with America, one out of every three of our government dollars is going to address sickness of diet-related diseases. And so you have this whole food system that's hurting our environment, that's contributing to global warming, that's killing our animals, that's doing horrific things, torturous things that most consumers wouldn't tolerate, that's driving independent family farmers out of business, that's hurting food and agricultural workers, and that ultimately is poisoning people with an explosion of diet-related diseases that's driving healthcare costs with nearly one out of every five of our dollars in our economy going to treat this sickness. And so, I mean, half of America now has diabetes or pre-diabetes because of this broken food system. But often now it's hard to get people to understand that the system that we are all within, the food systems that we're all in and participating in, um, to even be aware of how it's killing us and doing so much harm and damage to the world. I find that the policy follows the empathy. The policy follows the awareness. The policy follows the expansion of our moral imagination. You know, I look at the great movements in America of change, and I always say change never comes from Washington. It comes to Washington by people demanding it. And why do people demand it? It's because they somehow take a leap in empathy one of my favorite moments in history is in, in May, in the spring of 1963, before I was born, these children in Birmingham, Alabama, marched against a man named Bull Connor, who had fire hoses and dogs. And the news cameras happened to be there and captured the horror of it. And suddenly people that were comfortable, thousands of miles away from New Jersey to Iowa, saw on their evening news this, this violation of basic human decency and rights, and suddenly realized they had to do something. Many people flocked to Birmingham, and within a few weeks, if not shorter, the segregation fell. The problems are not bigger than we are. The necessity is for each of us to begin to help to expand the moral imagination of the world, to expand the level of empathy. And so that, to me, is the challenge now. I know this from my work with advocating against animal cruelty. I know if people knew the industrial farm animal system 
that they work so hard to hide. I, I'm sure you've probably been like me to go out to see some of these CAFOs, these concentrated animal feeding operations. Oh, they, it's horrible. And they cover the torture. They don't want consumers to know. It's a perversion of what our great-grandparents did to raise livestock. And they cover it. They even pass laws. They call them ag-gag laws, where they make it illegal for people to you know, have a camera and film what the horrors of the torture that goes on to these animals. And when you go into those communities, like I did in a place called Duplin County, North Carolina, the lowlands, where they have all these pig farms who are very intelligent animals, who, as you have shown through your incredible life work, that these animals have a range of emotions and they live in horror. And then they have so much feces that in these little tiny cages that goes through these grates that they stand on and into these massive lagoons of pig feces. And then they take that pig feces and spray it over fields that happen to be in low-income areas, always. And in this case, in Duplin County, in African-American communities. And I remember sitting in this room filled with people telling me their stories, that they can't breathe their own air, they can't open their windows, they can't run their air conditioning, they can't put their clothing on their lines to dry their clothing. They live like prisoners, and now the values of their lands have been driven down all by these international multinational corporations. And the people that do the farming of the pigs, they call them contract farmers, live like sharecroppers because of the dictates of these big corporations. And so you look at a system like that and nobody really knows. Nobody has had to sit and listen to these black communities talk about the horrors of living around horrors. And so to me, it's a challenge of empathy. Because if people knew when they eat their bacon, all the suffering that goes into it, then I don't think they would choose that. You say this all the time. It's one of the things I most love about your light and your philosophy. It's what King said. You live it elegantly. King said it elegantly, that we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. That is not just true for human beings, it's true for all living things. And so when we are in our part participating in this injustice, this, this lattice of integrated and interconnectedness, the suffering in one part, it, it is our responsibility to address. And so what I see is the challenge, and again, I don't look at myself in a narrow way. I am not just a politician, I'm a human being. All of us now are syndicators of information. Many of us have platforms, whether it's Twitter or Instagram. And I always tell young people, I say, I say, go back and do an audit of what you talk about. <laughs> Is it trivialities that you're posting? Or are you a great truth teller, like the activists in the civil rights movement? Are you pointing out the injustices that other people ignore? Because I think the more awareness, the more we let people know, like the civil rights activists in Birmingham did, that suddenly found a way to break through the noise of the world and show people closely what's happening, the more we're going to trigger and instigate activism that suddenly people are going to say, hey, Washington, why does the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, mandate animal testing when it is unnecessary? People will start saying, you can't, my government can't do that, especially when it's scientifically unnecessary. And I may have have a bill on that that's sitting there waiting, a bipartisan bill waiting for 
more people to help demand the change we want to see in this world. Because what happens to those animals affects me and that you can't treat animals in horrible ways without it visiting humanity. So what can bridge this horrible divide in the U.S.? I think about it a lot. And, and, and it's one of the reasons why I ran for president was this idea that what we needed, it was not doubling down on division and talking about how we were going to beat, in my case, it's Republicans, those children who marched against Bull Connor. They didn't win because they brought bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses. They won because they managed in a time of hate to change the frequency of our nation with their energy of love. And in this nation now more than ever, we don't need doubling down on division. We need to change our frequency. You know, democracies are based on trust, on this sense that we have common purpose. We've got to find a way to, to again, manifest our common purpose. And that's one of my missions in, in public life is, is how do we do that? We all have to understand that we don't have a monopoly on truth. A piece of legislation I got passed, it was an amendment on a big bill on education. And when I got to Washington, I, I wanted to, uh, I was advised to try to make friends with Republicans, take them out to dinner and, or go to their offices. And there was a very big senior senator named Inhofe who had Bible study in his office. And I went to his office to Bible study. He's one of the, the men, you may have heard about him, Jane. He brought a snowball onto the floor of the Senate as evidence that there's no global warming. <laughs> yes. And so I could I could mock him or, or or leave him in contempt, but no, I wanted to go and sit and study Bible, study the Bible with him. And so I, when I walked into his office, I was immediately confronted with something that challenged my implicit biases. We all have implicit biases. And what I saw was him in a picture with a little black girl. And I would not have expected this white elderly man, um, conservative. It, 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 again, this was my implicit bias. This was my um, prejudging. And I asked him about it, and it was his daughter. He adopted her out of a very difficult situation. And I was really moved by that. And it challenged me and my, again, my judgment, my prejudgment. And so months later, this big education bill is going through and they're not allowing any amendments on the bill. But I really wanted to get an amendment on there that would have helped foster children and homeless children. And I remembered him with that picture and I walked over to him and I said, sir, I explained it. I gave him a little card on it. And he said, let me think about it. And I walked to my other side of the aisle on the Senate floor and I turn around and he's making a beeline walking over to me and he hands me the card and says, I'm in. And walks away. And I didn't know, I ran after him, sir, what do you, exactly do you mean? He goes, I will co-sponsor your amendment. It's now the law of the land. We found a common decency where we saw each other's humanity and we learned more about each other. And that very effort made it enough of a foundation for us to build something that made our country better. And so you don't have to agree with everybody, but don't ever otherize them or have so much contempt that you don't see their humanity and you don't understand that you still have threads that connect you. Yeah, that's one of my big things that you've got to listen. My mother taught me that. She said, if you meet somebody you disagree with, listen to them. Try and find out more about them. Why do they think this way? Maybe they've got a point you never thought about, but you can't 
persuade people by shouting at them, yelling at them, pointing fingers, because they're not going to listen. But if you try and find something like that man with that little girl, that's the perfect example. Some little thing that you have in common, a link, one human being to another human being, and you start there. You know, I live in a, a, a neighborhood that's mostly black and brown, that's low income, and people make these assumptions. And, and I'll never forget having this conversation with a man I respect about children who bring weapons to school and how the reaction of this society is say, oh, this is a predator, this is a danger, and let's lock them up. But if you actually sit and begin to talk to why did this fourth grader bring a knife to school, you'll find out that it's because of fear. They didn't feel safe. And I have children in my community, half of America's murders, and we have a murder rate like no other country. Half of America's murders are black men, mostly young black men. And when you live in an area of such trauma, where you walk to school and you see sidewalk shrines of people that were murdered, where you hear gunshots in the 4th of July, when, when the colonies got our independence, we put fireworks off. But in my neighborhood, when those fireworks go off, children hide. And so that children living in a constant state of cortisol, pumping in their brains, constant stress, constant fear, when we're afraid, we do things like look for safety. And, and so the quick judgment is you brought a knife to school, you're going to jail. We're going to call the police as opposed to realizing that that is a symptom of something deeper. And if we brought our empathy to this situation and as a society address the larger, deeper underlying causes to this violence, we would create more peace. And I know you know about this from an African context, as often people judge conflict zones in Africa and what the people often do for survival. It's going to get worse before it gets better. We have to acknowledge that there'll be more and more and more climate refugees. And at the moment, sadly, the, the way that these climate refugees are greeted, along with the political refugees and the, those fleeing conflict, they're not exactly given a very warm welcome. The only way that we can hope to progress is getting more and more people, as you say, let's work on the empathy. How do we do that? We tell them stories. We help them to think by spreading goodness and empathy far and wide, further and wider than the hate. Well, you, you say this about the climate refugees. I had a conversation with David Beasley, who's head of the World Food Program, just about the scope and scale on the planet now of food insecurity and how we are at the worst we've been in, in your lifetime, uh, our lifetimes. And it's a combination of a lot of things from the ravishes of climate change uh, all the way to uh, areas of instability. And I'm working with some great bipartisan ways. I talked to Senator Chris Coons from Delaware and Lindsey Graham and trying to figure out for America to put billions of dollars more into our world feeding programs because I don't think most of us in privileged um, um, countries understand where we're heading. We could be heading into one of the greatest refugee crises that our planet has ever known. And so the challenge for all of us, I think, circles back to that wisdom from Ms. Virginia Jones is do something. We, we cannot just deplore the darkness of the moment. All of us have a responsibility. And, you know, at the end of the year last year, you know, I, I'm not a man of great material wealth, but I still try to 
give resources. And I talked to a friend of mine who is a Jewish, Orthodox Jewish man who gives to this Christian group in Africa that does medical care, you know, helping women with fistulas. And when he just did the calculus to me of the dollar invested in their work and the lives that are affected, it made me think of like, wh- why wouldn't I give mo- as much as I possibly can to be, if I can't do anything else, at least I can give of my resources. But then I also realized that one of the things that I can do having my platform as a senator, but we all have platforms. If you have more than two people following you on social media, you have a platform of influence. Tell these stories to let more people know, because right now we need it. This planet is in peril and people are suffering. Animals are suffering and the environment is in crisis. In other words, we must all gird our loins. Yes. And march forward. Yes. And tell stories and spread love and empathy and compassion. Which you are doing, Jane, which you are doing. And you have been a light, you know, when you wrestle with the darkness, you look for light workers. And uh, you are part of the constellation that illuminates uh, my sky. So I, I cannot tell you how grateful I am. And I hope we can partner either the, the things you're doing with young people excite me, the evidence you have uh, that supports legislation I'm trying to push, the way you continue to let people know about the beauty and the wonder and the urgent necessity of the animal kingdom is so important to me. And I hope we can find ways to work together. Corey, I am so immensely grateful to you for being on this Hopecast not just because you gave up your time, but because you have enriched me. And I know so much more about you and the path that you're taking and the values that we share. It's been fantastic. Thank you so very much. Well, you you have been a blessing and you are a blessing to me. And this is more of a um, privilege than I can express. Thank you for engaging me in conversation and inviting me to be with you for, for this time. And hopefully we can actually meet And I'll give you that same hug that your wise woman gave you. (laughs) (laughs) I would would love that hug. That would be one of the more epic moments of my life. Get a hug from James at all. And I want a hug back, please, Corey. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. Because I think we are actually beginning to move towards a different way of thinking and there are many young people out there who are as determined as I am. The problem is that we've lost what I call wisdom. The wisdom where we make a decision based on how will this decision I make today affect my people generations ahead. And now it's how will it affect me now, my family now, the next shareholders meeting. So I think there's a disconnect between this very clever brain and the human heart. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. 
The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Our producers are Ina Gaukusha and Alana Hellens. Our associate producer is Laura Boyman. And Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler.